This month, the journal Health Affairs had no trouble filling over 300 pages of the publication with articles about primary care. The timing of this theme issue, titled Reinventing Primary Care, is no accident. The need for the models, the systems, the health IT, the caregivers associated with what is arguably the foundation of any decent health care system has never been greater. That's true in the U.S., and it's true in many, many other countries as well. Cost containment, better health of the population, better management of chronic conditions, better access for those who've lacked the basics, all now seem to hinge to a large extent on whether we've got this primary care thing figured out. So that's what we're going to drop in with today on today's uh, WIHI, focusing on some of the latest innovations and assistance geared to transforming primary care. I'm Madge Kaplan, WIHI's producer and host. Welcome, everyone. I'm also IHI's director of communications. This is the second year of our free biweekly audio discussion with EDGE, as in Cutting Edge, from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. So about 475 of you and still climbing have gotten on board with us today. Welcome. Uh, We'll keep trying to catch you up uh, in the first few minutes. We do like to start on time. We do know uh, from your surveys that people appreciate it, and that's always a good rule to follow. So now to my introductions and a reminder again that there's more information about each of our guests on the WIHI web pages. First, I'm going to introduce Corey Seven. She's an IHI director who's been working on helping providers redesign primary care care practice to be more patient-centered and effective for many years. Corey really gets the nod for suggesting this focus for WIHI today. Welcome, Corey. Thanks, Madge. Really glad to be here. Okay. Where do we find you? What what city and state or town and state? Oh, I'm outside of Boulder, Colorado. Okay. Good to have you, Corey. Well, Corey led me to everyone else, starting with Anne Lefebvre, who is the Associate Director for the North Carolina Area Health Education Center's program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Anne is also leading one of these newish regional extension centers, or RECs, and she's going to tell us all about that. Welcome, Anne. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. All right, great. A familiar expert voice for improvers is that of Dr. Neil Baker. He's an improvement coach and consultant and often key faculty, I should say, wherever clinical practices want to get better at what they do. Welcome, Neil. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Okay, and where are you? Are you out in, where? what town are you in today? Cambridge Island, Washington. All right, good. good Is that home? All right. Well, welcome. All right. We're all over the map here. And finally, Roger Chauvernier, and I certainly hope I'm pronouncing that right, but I know he's going to tell me if I'm not. He is the CEO of CSI Solutions and deeply involved in helping healthcare organizations transform. Just listening to Roger briefly on a planning call we had knocked all sorts of things into perspective for me, so I'm thrilled to have him with us on this edition of WIHI. Welcome, Roger. Well, thank you, Madge. All right, good to have you. And where are you? Where are we finding you today? I'm just outside of Washington D.C. myself. Okay, very good. How did I do on your last name? As long as you don't say cauliflower, you have a wide margin of error, so you did fine. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, we could probably trade a lot of stories on names. Okay, thank you all. So uh, over 500 of you now on board, welcome. This is WIHI. I'm your host, Madge Kaplan. We're going to talk about some new, important innovations uh, coming to the aid of primary care. We're glad you're here. Roger, uh, as I warned you, I'm going to start with you. Um, I'm going to ask you to help us get a benefit 
benchmark established of what we're trying to build upon and transform. Paint the primary care picture for the United States right now. And what many might describe as kind of the burden of primary care uh, that providers have been perhaps coping with for way too long. Go ahead. Certainly, Madge. Thank you, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, you know, certainly I'll have uh, be stating the obvious here. We've got a, a very complex uh, healthcare system with uh, rising costs that are proving to be an anchor on our economy. At the time that today the uh, stock market has had a huge plunge, and everyone is uh, worried about the uh, economic tremors uh, throughout the world. Uh, despite all of these high costs, our, our outcomes are um, uh, suboptimal compared to our counterparts in, in, the, in the Western world and compared to what we know is achievable based on high performers here, here in the, the States. Uh, we were plagued by long waits and delays on a daily basis in getting access to care. And uh, when we do get access to care, we find it bureaucratic, frustrating as a patient, but also for all of uh, everyone working in a system. And all of that compounded by shortages in primary care around the country. Uh, many areas uh, considered medically underserved and huge uh, access issues. All of these are just uh, waves building up to forming this giant tsunami that's hit the, uh, the healthcare system. And finally, Finally, created the tension for change, where we've now seen a, a legislative uh, and elected response, moving with the uh, Recovery and Reinvestment Act, bringing $25 billion in technology into the system, uh, $10 billion in Medicare for programs not covered by uh, traditional uh, Medicare, Medicare reimbursement, and we have a new uh, Health Care Cost Reduction Act that is uh, providing access to the uninsured. So all of these forces creating uh, this perfect storm. Uh, and through this, there's a realization that ambulatory care, and specifically primary care, is uh, a key driver of the healthcare system. It's a driver of uh, utilization. It's a driver of access to care. And this is truly the moment of primary care. You know, what's really interesting uh, for me is while all of the national debate has been going on, uh, very quietly in the field, there have been a group of revolutionaries who've been uh, transforming healthcare. I call them the transformers. And what they've done is is they've gone very quickly after trying to uh, reinvent the system and develop a set of competencies that are uh, helping us uh, bridge this gap between what uh, we know is, uh, is the current state and what's possible in the future. Thanks, Roger. Uh, that's Roger Chauvernier, and uh, we're talking about primary care. And let's let's talk a little bit about some of those competencies. I know that you've been trying to sort of chunk those out in terms of uh, what really are the challenges and the the expectations um, and opportunities now for primary care. Sure. Well, I've uh, I've had the, the pleasure of uh, working and studying uh, many of these high performers over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, and uh, a couple of uh, key themes that I see is emerging uh, in terms of competencies, but also just an overarching observation. As I look at some uh, high performers out in the field uh, in uh, throughout the, the, the country and here in North America, I, I look at FQHCs like Clinica Campesina uh, in Colorado, CareSouth in South Carolina, White River. 
Northern Arkansas, and among many others, uh, or look at the Indian Health Service, groups like Chin Lee or Cherokee, others who have worked diligently in transforming their systems, or north of the border in Ontario with family health teams, uh, all working in, uh, in Barrie, Hamilton, elsewhere. Uh, one of the themes of all of these transformers, uh, those that have participated in the IHI, ICOP series, and others, they've all benefited from um, uh, learning experiences and coaching, and that'll be a theme that I think we'll be uh, discussing a little bit more. And through that coaching, I've emerged a, a series of um, uh, competencies I think they all share. The first one is uh, a focus at uh, both uh, population and patient focus. Uh, I think our healthcare system historically has been uh, pretty uh, traditionally reactionary. Uh, all of these groups have been able to uh, keep, keep very patient-centered in their efforts, but at the same time able to step back and really understand the needs of managing a population. That uh, forces a second competency, which is all around the changing roles of the care team. Uh, it's very interesting. If you look, uh, you mentioned that earlier, the health uh, affairs article in the last couple of issues. One of the underlying themes uh, in all of those uh, articles are the changing roles of the healthcare team in the field. And that puts a lot of uh, pressure on a practice in terms of rethinking uh, all of uh, the players in the system. A third competency is uh, all of these groups have moved from a project or having a project team involved in a collaborative or some external support to building a culture of innovation and optimization in the organization. They've really learned to master all these tools and methods and build it into daily work. Uh, a fourth area is their ability to really understand and leverage technology. You mentioned the regional extension centers and all this money coming into the system for technology, but most of these groups have moved beyond simply having an electronic filing cabinet to really leveraging their technology to do meaningful work in the field. And then uh, just two more last ones. One is uh, an issue of partnering. Uh, very interesting. In, in most of these areas, they've learned to engage relationships with other members of the healthcare system in a very different way. This is going to be really significant as we talk about accountable healthcare organizations downstream, where we may be at shared risk for some of the premium or some of the resources in the system and need to really partner and leverage our resources differently. And that leads to the last area that more and more groups are turning to the issue of the business case. And what is the business case for all of this work? And how do you make sure that all the uh, quality improvement efforts, all of these uh, initiatives uh, linked to the underlying uh, business case of the organization and being able to think not only clinically but also from a fiscal uh, matter. So those are new competencies and return on investment analysis and modeling and financial uh, assessments and so on. So these are some of the uh, emerging competencies I see. It's fascinating. Thank you, Roger Chauffournier. It's Madge Kaplan. We're at uh, WIHI here, and we're talking about uh, transformation of primary care, and we're going to get into coaching uh, and some of the technology issues in particular. But it is fascinating. I, in some sense, uh, one of the things Roger pointed out is that all this stuff has been in the making, actually, over the last 10 years or so, and in some sense it's now coalescing, coalescing, I should say, in a way that uh, we're, we're now finally beginning to see exactly, you know, what that map and blueprint might look like. Uh, I want to also remind everybody that we are grabbing at all the resources and references that are made today, and we have a great document that we post to the website that captures a lot of these, uh, as well as links, and we'll try and capture any jargon or any acronyms uh, that we can. IDCOP or uh, IDCOP refers to Idealized Design of the Clinical Office Practice. I know we've got a very, very savvy group on with us today, but I'll try and point those out as well. All right. Uh, thanks, Roger. And uh, I'm going to turn for, to you, Anne Lefebvre. 
Again, uh, Anne is the Associate Director for the North Carolina Area Health Education Center's program at the University of North Carolina. So, Anne, uh, definitely when we talked ahead of our program today, I could see that you are uh, really right at the sharp end of a lot of what's going on here, training people to be primary care practice coaches. Perhaps you can help us with that notion. And also now right at, uh, in, the, in the middle of uh, running one of these regional extension um, centers um, with a big focus, I guess, on electronic health records, but not only. So uh, your job briefly is to sort of help us understand kind of what your uh, organization is up to, which is probably somewhat of a template for what's going on in other locations as well. Welcome, Anne. Oh, thank you. I, I welcome, you know, I'm, I'm appreciative of the opportunity, and I do think this is a growing field. The North Carolina AHEC program for the last four or five years has has been working to build a coaching program throughout the state of North Carolina. Um, we're fortunate to have an infrastructure across our state, both as area health education centers, as we are teaming up with our Medicaid program, which is known as Community Care of North Carolina, and reaching out to primary care practices across the state with what we call QI coaches. And, and really, it's been an effort. We have about 12 quality improvement coaches or consultants across the state. And we're currently, up until now, we've been working and touching at about 160 either private practices or academic medical centers across the state, um, helping them improve their clinical outcomes in hypertension, diabetes, or asthma, using high-leverage change packages to really go in and help redesign and, and execute, improve the execution of their care delivery and their patient outcomes. And within this last year and, and all of the technology um, things that are coming along with the help of the ARA stimulus funding, we have now been issued to be a round one regional extension center, um, which means that we're going to take our coaching program and expand it from quality improvement to also encompassing that electronic health record implementation. And what we found is in the four years of doing this in quality improvement was we really became EHR experts <laughs> along the way in that about two-thirds of the practices that we've worked in along the way have had electronic health records. And in order for us to get quality improvement data for that practice to use to gauge their improvement on, um, we've had to learn how to really pull data out of these electronic health record systems and teach practices how to use their electronic health records in a meaningful way. So as this program of regional extension centers came along, we felt that we were a good fit for it because we had already been working in these practices and learned some tips and tricks along the way. So as we roll this out, we will be growing from 12 QI consultants to over 40 um, coaches in practices. We'll look to work with 800 to 1,000 practices across the state within the next coming years. Well, that's amazing. So, um, Anne, explain to me maybe what, um, when you, now that the electronic health record is probably here to stay <laughs> and, uh, you know, being implemented as we speak, uh, say a little bit more about what you're helping practices with. In other words, uh, people seem to be on at various stages of the journey. Uh, and, and where would you say are some of the bumps here? Well, I think that's a good point. I'll refer back to when Roger called them electronic filing cabinets. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good point. What we want to do is we want to um, help practices understand that these are um, electronic health records 
um, are meant to be used as relational databases, that they really are meant to gather and store information. And I think up until now, they've been largely used for billing and documentation systems, where now we want to use them as relational databases, where we can put data into these systems, and then we can ask these systems to generate this data in a way that we can look at our patients as a full population of patients, and we can truly judge the efficacy of the care that we're delivering um, and how well we're doing in delivering the care and how well our patients are responding to that care um, by the data that's coming out of these systems. Okay. In order to do that, we have to teach providers and their staff how to redesign their practices as well as how to enter the data into these systems in a way that makes sense so that we can get the data out of these systems. All right, sounds good. And are practices finding you or are you going out and uh, kind of fi finding them? A little bit of both. We have a great partnership uh, across the state with Community Care of North Carolina and our Office of Rural Health and our Community Health Center Association and um, and other groups. Our, our AHECs have, have nine regional centers who are the largest CME providers in our state. So a little bit of both. They're, they're coming to us for help, and, and we're getting the word out that we have services to help them. All right, sounds good. Okay, uh, this is WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan, and we're talking about new improvement injections for primary care with Anne LaFave, Roger Chaufournier, Corey Seven, and Neil Baker. I did want to remind everybody, I forgot to say this at the top, is uh, those of you who tune to WIHI regularly know I spend about uh, 20, 25 minutes leading my guests uh, through this kind of a conversation and laying groundwork, and then we're going to open it up for your questions and comments. I'm going to turn to Dr. Neil Baker next, who chatted to me that he actually had a question for uh, Anne, and also Neil told me as we were preparing that he likes to kind of feed off some of the things that others are saying, so that was going to be my first question to you, Neil. Is there anything you'd like to react to? And it sounds like you wanted to follow up on something Anne said. Welcome to the program, Neil. Thank you. Well, this um, is probably some observations I was interested in both Roger and Anne's reflections on, but to try to dive deeper into this phenomenon that's growing of having people go in to visit practices to help out. And already on the call, we've heard different terms for them. Uh, Anne used the term QI consultant. There's a term coach. There's the term uh, practice facilitator. And um, I thought it might be interesting to get, well, why, why are we why is this happening more, that we're sending people into the practices? Why, what are they doing? What is the demand here? Just uh, a reflection on this that, um, that I have is uh, one of the uh, best articles I've seen about um, what it really takes to change practice is from uh, Paul Nutting and collaborators from the Annals of Family Medicine 2009 on first national demonstration project of primary care medical home. It's from TransferMed. And they made the point that um, there's, that this, uh, one of the points in the article is that technology is not plug or play. There's all sorts of demands on habits, skills, and roles in the practice. I would say that um, what we're asking practices to do is not plug or play. What Nutting at all described this as is a developmental process. There's really not an endpoint. There's no specific pathway to get there, and that it has to be tailored to each practice. What's developmental about it, what that means is, is that there's a significant change in the habits and skills that people are applying every day, there are new roles and relationships. There are changes in the underlying assumptions about relationship. One prominent one that comes to mind is 
uh, in patient-centered care as opposed to the physician and the practice being in the expert role, diagnosing and telling the patient what to do. We're trying to learn what the patient's context is and help elicit and guide the skills and confidence to help them decide what to do to manage their illnesses. These are profound changes. And um, what they also talk about is the, the amount of reflection and support that it requires among a practice team and personal and group transformation and the change fatigue, burnout is very common. So when I um, think about people visiting practices, I go, is this why, is what Nutting and all are talking about, is this why it takes somebody going in to support because it's so tailored, it has to be tailored, individualized, and the personal and relationship issues are significant. Well, it's a very, very good question and observation. Um, let me, uh, let's, let's do this. Uh, Neil, I'm going to have you hold that thought for a moment. And let's, well, actually, I'll change my mind. That's my prerogative, I guess. Uh, Roger and or Ann, do you want to quickly maybe sort of address that? I mean, I think what Neil is doing is pointing out something significant. In many ways, we've been asking primary care practices to change, as Corey will attest. They come to programs. They've been working on various things. Now we're saying we're going to send somebody to you. I guess it could be called another version of a consultant, but you all told me it was very important to make that distinction. So um, what what's happened that somebody does need to kind of come in and get so into the sort of, you know, granular nature of your practice and your particular needs? Matt, this is Anne, and I'd be yeah. happy to, to take a stab at it from, from our point of view. I, I think a, a coach or, or consultant coming in from the outside um, I, I think Neil was right on with with what he was saying about you know the needs of this 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 really this type of work can't be taught in a lecture the the theory can be taught in the lecture but when you get back to your practice from that lecture there's all of yesterday's work to do plus today's work to do and right. I think being able to apply what we're talking about um, in truly redesigning and improving the care that you deliver. Um, is an ongoing process, and it needs to ebb and flow with the changes in your practice. And I think um, really what we do is is coach that practice into um, taking what we've learned from all of these other practices that we're working with, and why don't you try this out and see what works for you. Um, each practice functions very differently, and I think it, it's helping them to apply what we're teaching them in a sustainable way, which I think is the key to all of this, and that if we're truly going to see improvement, which also means reduction in cost, we need to build sustainable improvement out there. And in order for it to be sustainable, it has to fit and make sense in the practice. And the only way to do that is to really see the practice and help them try things on and adjust them, test them out with PDSA cycles, and and really make sure that it's going to fit and sustain. Mm -hmm. Roger, you want to say something quickly, and then I'm going to turn to Corey. Yeah, just two quick thoughts, uh, and Neil raises a, an interesting issue, and that one thing we have to be very careful of is that there are practice uh, coaches, facilitators, interventionalists, whatever you want to call them now, approaching groups every day, with, but with different missions, and um, we have to make sure that the competencies of the uh, facilitators are evolving to be able to deal with technology as well as improvement methods and other pieces. The second piece to just comment is uh, I struggled with this issue uh, being a CEO of an organization, even in my 
own organization woefully underperforming and inadequate relative to building uh, the, the true culture long term. And the organizational inertia, the day-to-day treadmill that everybody's on, they're, they're meeting their grant needs, they're meeting their project needs. It's very hard to, to build that culture and the infrastructure to sustain that. And the, the external force and the external accountability to keep your eye on the ball uh, can be very helpful in, uh, in guiding that long term. Does this mean that you have a you can have a primary care practice coach for life? <laughs> Somebody who can periodically at the other end of a hotline uh, possibly to help sustain? Well, in North Carolina, that's that's kind of how our program is established. Okay. In that we go in, we work with the program. We're teaching them how to fish. Okay. And once they learn how to fish, then we're happy to back out of that program. But if they have key staff turnover or if there's new issues that they're facing that they need help with, we, by all means, will reestablish that relationship and go back in. All right. Very good. And there's good. a similar approach in Ontario. There's an initiative spun off by the health ministry, and they put family practice teams through a collaborative initiative with a practice facilitator, but they are continuing to maintain a relationship after as a resource, as an ongoing coach. Okay, so I'm going to turn to Corey Seven now, and already we've got a couple people uh, floating in some questions, one of which I think will make a lot of sense to Corey. Um, it's actually a question for Anne, how are the North Carolina coaches selected and trained? But uh, Corey Seven, I'll, I'll say, is involved in some primary care practice coaching um, that uh, is getting underway here at IHI as well. But I think my question for you, Corey, before we get into that, is uh, so you've been at this a long time. Th- this must represent sort of a very interesting um, kind of maybe a change of direction, or maybe the moment has arrived that maybe you'd been hoping for, Corey. Well, I uh, thanks, Madge, and uh, it's really great to ha- be having this program and talking about the issues because I am such a believer in talking things together. Uh, we will find some solutions together. So it's great to be talking about it. Um, I'm hopeful. I think there's a lot going on in the environment to say that um, there, that it can be hopeful. There's the stimulus dollars that Ann talked about. There's uh, the whole concept of a patient-centered medical home, which I think people really can get their arms around, and it gives some guidance for how to go about this long journey. Um, Do you see this, Corey, as kind of bridging... Um, I mean, I'm just trying to think about all the things that even your work over the years, which has been helping practices deal with access and waiting times and appointments um, and, you know, practices sort of drowning in paperwork and not enough time with patients. And, of course, patients and families uh, decrying long waits and lack of uh, coordination and dropped balls and that kind of thing. I mean, do you see things coming together in a way that maybe can uh, begin to sort of solidifies more of these changes? Um, I I'm, a- think- I'm asking you a very big question. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that that is definitely the hope, and I think there's a lot going on to say that, that those kind of things can happen if the people who are the leaders in this area, both financially and clinically and those in improvement, if we can really keep our eye on that ball. In any big change, there's always the opportunity to kind of get off course um, and not really change, and I think there's certainly that opportunity in the world that we live in today. But I think that um, I think that I don't know what happened exactly 
10 years ago or 15 years ago, I think there was a time where primary care really did its job really, really well. And the job of primary care is to really uh, develop a relationship with individuals and families, uh, work with them over the course of their lifetime to manage uh, not only their diseases, but really to, to go towards health so that people could uh, live the lives that they wanted. And, and part of my getting ready for this program today was thinking back on my uh, 25-year career as a nurse practitioner in primary care um, and just thinking about why do I feel so passionate about primary care and getting it right. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and I think, you know, part of that is I've seen myself seeing the power of relationships in primary care help people in really, really significant ways. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely part, right. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and, well, and part of the difficulty and the challenges over the last 10 years that relate to many different environmental factors is, is really the degradation of primary care practices to be able to do what they can do really well. And so I think, you know, what I'm really excited about and passionate about is <clears throat> You know, how can we help primary care get back to where it can be very powerful as a piece of the healthcare system? And I think that the the emergence, it really was a grassroots emergence of coach programs, both internal coaches and external coaches, is is one response among many collaboratives and other efforts um, to help support practices make those moves. Okay, very, very good. All right, that's Corey Seven. This is Madge Kaplan. WIHI is what you're tuned to. Roger Chaufournier is with us. So is Anne Lefebvre and Dr. Neil Baker. Um, I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to start, I'm going to give a nudge to Jesse here to uh, remind everybody about chatting. And I think what I'd like to do as a first question, I know Jesse likes to get in his first question, is um, I want us to talk a little bit about, maybe Anne and, and Corey both can talk a little bit about what makes somebody a good coach what are some of the competencies that's an early question that's coming in as well so and let me let me start with you and i think Corey may have some thoughts as well um so there's a general question from crystal how are the north carolina qi coaches selected and trained and uh i think there's kind of a, a broader issue somebody's asking also what's an example of a change uh that uh, a coach might help an office practice make why don't we start with you ann Okay, so I think, you know, if, if we're looking at, at technical skills and, and experience background, I think for um, for our experience with our program, we're really looking for, we're, we've been so blessed to have um, a, just a, a great group of consultants in our program. Um, we In selecting them, we look for a strong background in ambulatory care and healthcare delivery. Um, understanding how the systems in a practice work um, is really important when you're going to help guide a practice in changing some of their systems. Um, we look for a, a background in, in QI, but I will tell you that the, the strongest attributes that really, that I think make a successful coach out there in the practices is creativity and flexibility. And you really, you can plan as best you will of what you're going to help facilitate in this practice today. And when you get there, it may be to- their needs may be totally different than what you had planned. And I think being able to, you know, put their needs first and, and help them um, learn how to improve 
is is really what wins at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Okay, very very good. And can you give us an example uh, of of a change uh, that coaching one the program may have? Uh, I'm sure there's many many examples, but just anything that stands out of a kind of change that one could uh, actually um, anticipate. Sure. So there's all kinds of changes um, that can be made, and they, we make them according to what the practice. Um, needs and what their data drives as to what needs to change in the practice. Um, some examples of changes, especially with the influence of technology, is really using your EHR as a registry to, you know, to indicate to the care team of what care is needed today so that you're using your electronic functions and, and your reminders and things like that in your electronic health record or registry to indicate what care is needed today. But I think there's also redesign changes that are needed, and a good example that everyone can probably relate to is is I was in a practice that has nine exam rooms. They start scheduling at 8 o'clock in the morning, so of course they want to fill those exam rooms at 8 o'clock in the morning. But they had two vital stations where they would collect blood pressures, height, weight, and those types of things on a, on a patient. Well, if you have nine people scheduled at 8 o'clock in the morning and they all need to get through the vital station before they hit an exam room and you only have two, two vital stations, you're either going to have some people who have blood pressures skipped because they want time or we're rushing patients through there to get their blood pressures taken, which probably is not the ideal way to have a blood pressure recorded for a patient. So being able to redesign how that care is delivered in that practice to meet both the practice's needs in scheduling those patients and filling the exam rooms, but also providing the best care, which in this case might be the best blood pressure reading that we can get, would be to possibly take the blood pressures out of those vital stations and only do height weight and then record blood pressures in the exam rooms after the patient has had a chance to really sit down and, and you know, be a part of their visit. So just an example of how you might redesign a, a practice and their care delivery, or you might redesign your technology system as to how you're going to capture that care today. All right. Sounds good. That's a very, very uh, vivid example. Thank you, Anne. So we have a couple of questions uh, having to do with uh, the financing, financial models. Uh, part of the implicit thing we've been discussing here with some of the programs that we started the show with was that these are federal dollars. There's funding here. Uh, I guess that won't be around forever, and uh, but it's it's there certainly as a, a kind of a stimulus and a jump start here. So Carol uh, is asking, please discuss financial models to support practice coaches. Uh, the comment is great asset, little funding. And Dan had a, co- a question for Roger in particular, what is the return on investment of use of a primary care practice coach? So let me, um, maybe I'll throw some of that money stuff uh, at, at you, Roger, and Neil, uh, feel free uh, also to chime in. Okay, sure, sure. This is Roger. I'll take a, a first crack at it. The, um, I think it's important to uh, establish that um, uh, most of what we've been talking about has been in the context of coaches being affiliated with a sponsoring organization or sponsoring initiative. There are uh, increasingly uh, uh, 
I guess people opening up their own practices as freestanding coaches, as corporate coaches, and, and that has a you know a different economic model. So uh, typically, when, when we see a practice coach, it, it's part of a um, uh, something like the regional extension centers, which are hiring coaches now to go out and work in the field uh, to assist with the meaningful use incentives. And there, there's uh, there's grant or federal subsidy behind it. Uh, many are sponsored by payer initiatives. Uh, Ann's group is a very good example that um, in, in indirectly funded by Medicaid, uh, but uh, there's a greater resource to their uh, participating organizations, but also having a, a revenue model for the individual uh, organizations. Uh, the question about you know, return on investment, again, really comes down to the uh, individual context of the organization. If you're uh, looking at working with a regional extension center uh, or another organization to uh, retain a, a coach to help you with your technology, and uh, if that were to cost to uh, you know, three to five thousand dollars over the course of, of a year or eighteen months, uh, you stand to gain potentially the incentives from Medicare, uh, the forty some thousand or sixty some thousand uh, on the Medicaid side from the uh, federal incentives. So the ROI there is very strong for that for that investment. If you're talking about practice optimization, where you're looking at uh, trying to improve your your bottom line, and you can use a coach to help you get through an advanced access model if you've not put one into place, and and that helps you in terms of your throughput, uh, that return on investment can be multifold for uh, the time and energy that would go into it over a period of months. So I think a lot of this does depend upon uh, the individual context, uh, but the uh, return on investment can be significant for, uh, for the relationship. Thanks, uh, Roger. Uh, Neil, do you want to jump in on, on this matter or anything else you've been hearing? Um, the, um, actually, I was... Um... <laughs> Are, are, are you are you following another line? It's it's quite. Yeah, I was following another line of thought in the questions, uh, but I don't. I feel like Ann and Roger can comment much better on the return on investment. Well, why don't, well go ahead. Let's let's. Uh, I just want to. I'm going to mix it up here a little bit. So go ahead. You can. Uh, what what are you thinking about? Well, there was a, a note from um, Dean McAllister on uh, what you call the practice coaches, which relates to what. Competencies you're talking about, and in the question, she said uh, the name is important because it tells you what they're going to do. There's differences between consultant, coach, facilitator, and when you um, when I look at the literature out there and talk to people, um, I think that there's a tremendous uh, there's overlap in a lot of these definitions, but also differences. I don't think there's some common de uh, definitions of these terms that people use. That are very that are real precise and bounded. Uh, the um, in, but in general, what I would say is in the primary care world, the term coach is used to refer to a broad variety of types of interventions which a person may do who's visiting a practice, ranging from uh, telling, offering expertise, tools which would be more in the consulting, training, education range. Uh, down to the other end of the continuum, which would be eliciting, drawing out, enabling, helping people to reflect on their learning, to, to come up with what the strengths and ideas that are inside of them, which would be more on the facilitation end of things. Some people call that whole continuum, uh, facilitation continuum, ranging from doing to enabling. So there are different continua here, but what I'm impressed with is the variety of skills that a person visiting a practice will need 
ranging from the knowledge of office practice design to knowledge about human response to change, what it evokes in them, and how best to respond to that skillfully. Uh, so I think the range of skills here is significant. I think more what I've seen more often is the types of skills that are emphasized are practice redesign and quality improvement knowledge, as opposed to the types of interpersonal skills and communication skills, facilitation skills, that are emphasized out there in the more executive business coaching world. Part of the program that IHI is, is, is going to have in the, in the next year, our community of uh, professional development program for coaches is to try to bring those two worlds together. Mm-hmm. Neil, uh, that's kind of a, thank you, Neil Baker. That's kind of a nice lead-in. Uh, IHI does have a program that's getting underway on June 24th, and there's more information on that on the website. A couple of people are asking about training. Uh, there may be some other uh, types of uh, opportunities out there, but there is one coming from IHI. And Corey, in, in crafting, Corey 7, in crafting the program coming up, I'm sure you're thinking a lot about uh, the competencies. We have a question here also. Somebody is asking, how does this coach model differ from, say, the IHI office practice community goals of using lean to implement process changes, et cetera. I'm hearing an awful lot of things that kind of getting rolled up into some new forms. So maybe you can help clarify that, Corey? Yeah, would be happy to, Madge. Um, the, so a coach in primary care, as we I think people are probably getting at this point, needs to know a lot about primary care, uh, know the changes that really make a difference as you put in an EMR or do office practice redesign, as Anne has pointed out some examples uh, needs to know quality improvement methods and how to lead an organization and a team through some kind of change, and then need to know how to how am I a, an effective coach as an individual out there trying to help. And as we looked around and talked to people across the country and uh, across the seas about uh, what the need was, we wanted to build a program that didn't compete with, with what was already out there. And um, what we heard is that a lot of people who are in this role in primary care practices, either internal or external, kind of grew into the role. And what they're, what people are looking for is, is really in that third bucket. <clears throat> you know, how can I, what do we know about being a really effective coach? How can I, uh, what are ways that I can see as a coach the organizational dynamics, the team dynamics? all the issues around change that Neil alluded to uh, as they're trying to apply uh, the knowledge for office practice redesign. So our coach program is a professional development program that really is focused on that last bucket. What do we know and can bring to bear to help coaches become more effective at uh, really helping the organization reach its goals? So one question that's uh, being raised in the chat here is wondering whether somebody, you're, you're sort of talking about some of this organically, people sort of beginning to see themselves almost as uh, being good coaches. So does that suggest that somebody could work at a clinic uh, and have some clinical responsibilities and also function as a coach uh, internal, or is it better to have somebody come in with some kind of a fr- fresh perspective outside. Uh, maybe, Corey, I'll just ask you that quickly, and then any of the rest of you want to weigh in. Yeah, I've heard different things, Madge. I've heard uh, so many people who've actually enrolled in our program so far are the kind that have grown into the role. They, they're physicians and nurses and social workers, and they want to take it to that next level. And then I've 
uh, in my connections, say, for an example, Clinica Campesina, they've hired some external coaches, and they think they're some of the best because they bring fresh eyes. So I don't know if we uh, know that. Uh, Anne and, and others might have some, some more input put into that. This is Roger. Uh, you know, a couple other thoughts. The um, you know, hospitals uh, for many years uh, and, and health systems certainly have uh, created their own internal resources for coaching. Uh, I point to Hopkins and their, their Center for Quality where they have a staff that are available to the departments to help coach on various uh, improvement initiatives and, and other aspects of medical home and other pieces. But uh, many of, uh, of uh, the professional societies, Academy of Family Practice, the AAFP, uh, working on on uh, uh, mentoring relationships and roles. I think Noreen has something on the uh, chat uh, group about uh, some of these resources from the professional groups. So this need is being recognized. It's being filled uh, in a variety of different ways. And I think uh, at a primary care level, for those that are interested in in establishing a relationship, to look at the resources in the broader environment, whether it's a local hospital, whether it's the regional extension center, whether it's um, a professional society that may be able to offer uh, some of these coaching resources. Okay, sounds good. Uh, Anne, uh, I'm, I'm going to turn to you again, Anne Lefebvre, and uh, maybe as part of this, uh, implicit in sort of who might become a coach, uh, it, we're sort of talking about a, a greater variety of roles. There was reference to social worker, maybe nurse practitioner, that's Corey's background. Um, I'm curious in all of this, uh, is this another way that we're going to be able to better embrace and diversify who is actually delivering primary care? You know, I think that that'll be interesting to to see. I, I do think that um, you know, there's there's no question that primary care needs to move to to team based care. Um, we we just can't do it all in one person, <laughs> and and we need to branch out and use all the different resources. Uh, you know, again, as far as you know, what background makes a good coach? I I we have a mixture in our program. We have. We have nurses. Um, I myself am a social worker. Um, we have um, masters of public health as well, who are great at, at driving change by data and those types of things. So, um, I, I think I'm hoping that it kind of expands the thinking in primary care to, you know, you really need to find the best person for the job, and I think that that's important. I think a process-oriented person always helps someone who can see the steps in the process, so you can see where some changes. Um, will help along the way is, is very useful. I do think that um, as far as internal or external coaches and who, who do you look for on your team who could do this, primary care has a resource problem right now. Um, and, and one of my concerns, I, I think, you know, perhaps the answer might be both. Um, but I think we need to be careful. When you have an internal person, resources are scarce. And is that person really going to be able to dedicate the time that they need to do to lead or facilitate this team in, in the work that they need to do? Or sometimes someone coming in from the outside, at least for a little while, causes the team, the care team, to stop and recognize that this time is needed for quality improvement. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Anne. Um, Roger and then maybe Neil, I'll, I'll get both of you. I'm going to sort of pull back a little bit again. And by the way, I'm looking at a lot of the wonderful uh, comments that are being made in chat and how you're actually all of you answering one another with great resources. Just a reminder, when you log off the program today, uh, you can download this chat. Make sure to choose that option. And also, if you're only on the phone today and want a copy of the chat, go ahead and um, ask for that at info at IHI.org. 
So I, I'm going to come back to this point, which is, in some sense, looking at the goals. Um, Corey sort of talked about, you know, being trying to remember what's the whole point of this and the patient care experience and even why providers are in, in this uh, to interact with patients for a good quality of life. So I want to talk about two broad goals. Are we still looking at the medical home, for example, as kind of the, the brass ring here of, of where we're, why we're bothering with all of these resources? And what about this diversification? Maybe not so much thinking about it at the coaching side, but in terms of who's delivering primary care and where does that fit into this improvement journey? So how's that, Roger? Too much to take on all at once? <laughs> Certainly. Well, uh, you know, I think the, uh, the topic is very timely. I was uh, on an expert panel on the medical home this morning. This issue came up of what really is the end game. What is, what is the medical home and is this an, a transitional uh, strategy or is there a broader end game? I, I think it's really important to keep that end game in mind that this is all a journey about helping to transform the quality of care for our population, for uh, the community that we're serving. And uh, our role in primary care, what that might be in meeting that mission and being clear on who we're trying to serve. Uh, and taking advantage of what are the, uh, the emerging models, the best practices, the tools and methods and then how to apply them in our environment. There are groups who are able to do that on their own without a coaching model. They're, they're the real uh, early adopter and pioneers, but increasingly uh, groups find that the organizational inertia, some of the interpersonal dynamics suggest that uh, that external resource um, uh, can be uh, can be helpful uh, in, in the journey. So I think uh, that, that broader aim of understanding where we're heading is critical, and uh, there'll be many, many different pathways to get there. What was the second? I, I blanked on your second question. I, I don't blame you because I asked two big, chunky ones. Well, the other one is sort of, I mean, we haven't even mentioned, although I did at the beginning, the kind of shortage issue. I mean, I'm looking at a story a day still, you know, about what are we going to do about so few medical students choosing primary care. We seem to be still talking about, you know, the diversification of uh, uh, who can provide primary care. But where, where does that fit in to, to all of this thinking right now? Uh, turning that tide in terms of what medical students uh, are choosing is not going to happen overnight. Yeah, I think that's the, the, there's a couple of issues that pop out of that. Um, yeah, I think uh, it saddens me to see uh, primary care practitioners bailing out because of frustrations with the system at times when we have shortages. So, you know, we, we have to, as part of this end game, really need to recognize the, the toll that day-to-day -day, uh, challenges of our system plays and, and creating a system that's more friendly and uh, more rewarding. A lot of that comes from the data that uh, Anne was talking about, the ability to see the progress we're making. But this, this notion of who is in primary care and, and how are we working with primary care is, is raising some really fascinating um, prospects, especially as you look at some of the high performers and new relationships that they're, they're, they're developing and changing the roles of community partners. Uh, the role of community partners, for example, in self-management uh, and taking on that uh, in partnership with the local primary care uh, organizations and, and making that really effectively work. It's not easy to be a good partner or to create or find a good partner, and again, that, that's a potential role that a, a coach may help with uh, with the journey. But I think we have to think beyond our traditional walls and our traditional roles and relationships, and be willing to look at how we can leverage the greater resources. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, in this true medical home concept, someone needs to be responsible for keeping an eye on the ball for that individual patient and for that population, and making sure that all those partnerships are working well and are fully being leveraged. Okay, very, very good. 
good. Uh, all right, well, we're going to sort of start to kind of roll up uh, to the top of the hour here, and we've got a, a couple of uh, concrete questions. Some people are wondering if you're a coach, how many practices might you be working with at the same time? And that made me wonder, uh, might you ever bring some of those practices together uh, in any collaborative fashion? Oh, absolutely. So in, in North Carolina, our model right now is our – Coaches work for, with anywhere from 20 to 30 practices at a time, um, depending on geography. Yeah, right. <laughs> things. Um, and we um, do networking meetings with our practices three to four times a year. So we have nine regions across the state. Each region brings their practices in that region in for dinner um, three to four times a year to meet with each other and share their success stories about what's working in their practice and what can we steal from each other to, to really make that work. And so we've chosen to do dinner meetings, again, because primary care is pressed for time, so nobody has to close their practice for it. Um, but it gives us a couple solid hours to really share, you know, EHR templates and best implementation advice to what are changes they can make to really improve in outcomes and how are they working with their patients and communities. Okay, very, very good. All right, I think what I'm going to do is, Neil, I'm going to turn to you and see if uh, it, what uh, anything been said uh, that you'd like to react to. I know you had some sort of cautionary thoughts uh, about the primary care practice coach, and maybe uh, you can sort of give us a few parting ideas here. Well, I... Um I think that Roger mentioned this earlier about there's a lot of different types of practice visitors these days, different missions coming from either affiliated with organizations or freestanding. And I think that one of the, uh, there's internal coaches, external coaches. I think that one of the core things is about skills in coaching is to be very savvy about the framework, the, the context in which uh, you're coaching. And a key to success of improvement efforts is uh, clear leadership and sponsorship, not only of the practice working on improvement, but also of the coach and defining the boundaries of that role, the objectives, the timelines. And because this is uh, so complicated, it's intense, uh, there's such shortages out there, it's easy to have what they call scope creep of the coach's role or the coach falling into more doing for rather than enabling. So I think that clarity about the context, roles, boundaries, outcomes is very important. And um, because we have so many different types of efforts, there's no one model out there. It's important to decide is this particular, to design it to tailor to the situation and with specific outcomes in mind and to be looking at every step of the way, is this working for us? Okay. All right. Sounds good. Corey, thank you, Neil, uh, Dr. Neil Baker. Corey, uh, kind of, I, I, it sounds like people have great questions. Someone's asking, is there an ICD-9 code for billing for coaching? I think getting back to some of the financing, people are wondering about really good examples of successes and failures. I sort of see a crying need here for a lot of sharing of information. I think somebody asked earlier on there, where, where's the National Clearinghouse uh, for what we're all learning from all of this? Uh, so uh, you don't find that too much to put on your agenda, do you, Corey? <laughs> oh, no, we'll just collect that tomorrow. <laughs> uh, just some important <clears throat> thoughts here. Yeah, you know, um, I've had such fun. It's been so, uh, it's been really incredible to talk to people in this coaching role over time and 
And what really grounds me and, and gives me a lot of hope is that over and over and over I just hear people passionate about the power of primary care and what's the purpose of primary care is to really help people live their lives really well. And that's where we all want to get to. We want practices that are vital and people can can do the work that they love to do and patients and families and individuals can really benefit. And I, so I think that's what I hear as I talk to all the coaches because I'm telling you, <laughs> these are passionate people that work in primary care. And uh, so I'm, I'm pretty hopeful based on that. Okay, thank you so much, Corey Seven. And uh, Corey will be at the center with also some of the people on today's program of a primary care practice coach program getting underway at IHI. Starts on June 24th for 12 months. So uh, we hope you'll check that out and a lot of the other resources uh, that are mentioned uh, in, in the chat today. Anne Lefebvre, uh, just some uh, parting ideas. I, I think you're, you know, you're at sort of the leading edge of kind of a revolution going on here, and uh, I hope we'll begin to learn a lot more from, from what you're doing. Oh, I hope so, too. We're, we're excited about it, and we consider ourselves fortunate to be doing it. Okay. Thanks so much for being part of this. Uh, Roger, I think you gave us uh, a lot of really good and hard information. Uh, kind of, uh, I guess you'll be probably keeping a close eye on, on a lot of this work, and we'll get you back here. Great. It's a unique time in history, and we all have to seize the moment. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay. And, and Neil Baker, I guess uh, any parting ideas? I think I got that from you before, but I guess uh, uh, what would you say is your biggest hope right now uh, with, with what, we've, uh, what we're sort of doing here? We're coming at this now with some uh, kind of a big infusion, it seems, at some level, and I guess it's, it's kind of that opportunity and maybe seize the moment, huh? Yes, and also most important to learn as we go along what is what leads to success and what doesn't. Okay, so there's a great kind of reminder of improvement. Uh, figure out whether a change is an improvement and measure, measure, measure in, in all of this as well. Well, thank you. This has been a terrific program. I realize people have uh, a lot of uh, very interesting and very specific questions, and we hope we at least started to get some groundwork going. Uh, feel free to email us at info at IHI.org. Look for the resource uh, document that captures a lot of interesting links related to our guests today and the work that's underway. That'll be uh, up on the website by tomorrow, as will the audio of this program. You can also find the audio on iTunes. You can subscribe uh, to Institute for Healthcare Improvement on iTunes. Excuse me, iTunes. Boy, what was I going to say? Reminder that you can download the chat when you log off today, any slides that we showed, and also if you can take just a moment to fill out a brief survey, we'd appreciate it. Next up on WIHI, and that's on June 3rd, 2010, 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, grab a collaborator in your hospital referral region and come find out some of the latest data and work taking place to improve health, health care, and to lower costs at the regional level. We've got Tallahassee, Florida on board to tell their story and many other examples as well. Carol Beasley, Tom Nolan, John Hogan from Tallahassee, Laura Landy on board from the Ripple Foundation. It should be really interesting. Hot off a meeting in Washington the week before. So that's all available on the WIHI webpages right now. The people who make 
WIHI possible. They know who they are, but I love to tell them anyway. Jonathan Small, Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Brittany McPhee, Jane Rossner, Matt Morse, and Vicki Minden. At the beginning of the show, you heard some music performed and arranged by Patricio and Jennifer Batayas, the music that opens and closes WIHI. Those are original arrangements by Aaron Flanders and Miguel Sapasoa. It's my privilege, I hope you can tell, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for your terrific participation. Good day. Mm-hmm.